You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to another episode of Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. I'm your host, Jeff Lambert. Today, I am honored to be joined by the gentleman from the Central Valley Vintage Baseball Association. Today, we have four representatives from the group. We have Matt Stone, who's the founder and director of the CVVB. (laughs) And we have DJ Latcham, who's the vice president and also the president of the Sacramento Club. We have Curtis Pyatt who is the vice president as well of the association. And then we have Noah Pluger-Peters, who is the communications director and the group president of the Oleta Baseball Club of Davisville. That is quite the name there for your club there, Noah. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So I want to jump right into learning more about uh, your guys' association, what you're doing over there, and, and just finding a little bit more about the type of vintage baseball that you play. So why don't we start off by talking about for people that are unfamiliar who haven't been to a vintage baseball game before, what are some of the things that would automatically jump out as different to them uh, as opposed to if they went to a major league baseball game? All right. Well, I'll jump in first. My, uh, this is Matt. I think there are three things that people would notice first. The, the first thing that you would notice is that we set up our field. We don't have a typical field with uh, a typical diamond with a sort of backstop or anything. We just play on an open field and we set everything up by ourselves every single game. We set down our own bases and our own home plate. And then the second thing you might notice is that the players are wearing kind of funny looking uniforms, you know, because we're talking about uh, the 1860s and the uniforms are much different right, that back then. And finally, uh, the fact that we don't wear gloves at all in the 1860s, uh, gloves weren't really part of the game. So people would notice those three things right away. Now, Matt, just as a follow-up to what you said, when you guys set up the field, are you playing on an existing baseball diamond, you know, something in, in the town or the city where you are? Or are you just finding a random field to play in? Where do you pick your location? We pick our location wherever is uh, convenient for us to have enough room to play. We don't have any specific requirements except space. Uh, we've played on sort of open fields that are completely flat. We've played on open fields that are, are sort of rolling a little bit. But pretty much we are not going to any place that is already set up by the parks departments or any other entity in the town. It's just an open field. Now, guys, for all of you, uh, with your experience playing in the league, is there any times that stick out at you that you've played at a location where there's been a uh, terrain uh, abnormally or difficulty that sticks out in your head? I'll chime in on this. Uh, this is Noah speaking. Uh, there's one last year we went to a Civil War reenactment, which was really fun, and we taught the soldiers how to play baseball. But this battlefield, um, it basically sloped down once you got past second base. So there was like 
first of all, there's like potholes and divots everywhere, so the ball would bounce wherever. But also, like center field was lower than you were than uh, the batter was, so you'd have to like run down to chase the ball sometimes. Well, that's <laughs> that sounds like quite the extra challenge there. Uh, anybody else mm-hmm. in terms of uh, uh, difficulties that you've experienced from the terrain? Well, this is Curtis. Um, I've played on fields where there were actually trees in the outfield as well. Uh, so trees do play into the game, um, and you have to work around them. Oftentimes, they will interfere with the travel of the ball. And as we will probably bring up later, there's something called the bound rule that will also be affected by the way the ball comes into contact with the tree. Now, if the tree catches the ball in, in the branches, does that count as an out? <laughs> I've never seen that happen. <laughs> something to keep in mind for later <laughs> uh matt you mentioned uniforms as well would would one of you be willing to talk about some of the differences the uniforms uh play from a modern version to the vintage rules that you play by oh sure um this is matt again our uniforms especially out here so vintage baseball is extremely popular back east but and it's also popular out here. It's becoming more popular with uh, the several different programs that, that are going on out in California. And there's also a couple of them up in uh, Washington and uh, Oregon. What we have to do, though, is we're trying to be as historically accurate as we can. And aside from the Sacramento Baseball Club, we really don't have a lot of information about what a uniform might have looked like in this area in the 1860s. So it gives us a little bit of wiggle room to decide what we want to do. So... One of our clubs, the Athletic Baseball Club of Woodland, for example, we're trying to represent a baseball team that may have been made out of a bunch of farmers because it's an agricultural town. So these guys, we wear uh, we wear this plaid green shirt with long sleeves and uh, sort of an Amish-style straw hat. It's awesome. And it's actually, you know, has good utility as well because, you know, really is good for shading the eyes. Out here in the Central Valley, there's a lot of sun. So that hat works out really well. DJ, why don't you chime in and talk about the Sacramento Club's uniform, though? Yeah, so this is DJ, and uh, like Matt was saying, with the Central Valley Vintage Baseball, all the uniforms are slightly different to kind of tailor towards what the different clubs are looking like. But Sacramento, we were fortunate enough to have some historical accuracy from newspaper clippings about what the uniform would look like. It's a white button-down uniform, and we use we, we cheat a little bit, and we... Uh, use like a, a Dickies dark navy blue pant, um, but it's all long sleeve and it's uh, incredibly warm to play in. Um, but luckily, uh, being in California, we weren't subjected to a lot of wool, so um, it breathes a little bit better than than the traditional wool uniforms that people tend to think about when they think vintage baseball. Yeah, so I'll chime in again. I'll tell you about the the Etna Baseball Club's uniform. This is Matt again. So we have four clubs. And we've already told you about two of them. Here's the third one. It's called the Aetna Baseball Club of Dixon. We found this one really interesting picture from probably the late 1860s. And it was kind of intriguing because it had these guys that were clearly baseball players. And they were wearing these sort of dome-looking hats. And some of them had not really a dome-looking hat, but one with that cut straight across. And we thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And they were wearing vests. So we put them, we put these poor guys into black shirts and a vest and a black hat, and we still make them play out in the sun out here. Uh, We've come to realize, though, that those hats aren't very good because they don't really shade shade anything at all. But that's 
something that was kind of a typical look in this area back in the 1860s. And so we went ahead and we, we turned our baseball team into one of them. <laughs> Why don't we run with that a little bit and in going into the next question, guys, there were certain things that were normal by the standards of when, you know, 1860s rules were followed as uh, opposed to now. What are some of the major things that jump out to you in terms of playing difficulty between playing modern baseball and baseball under these 1864 rules? So I'll, I'll, I'll chime in on this. Uh, I mean, the biggest difference that anyone will notice the moment they look at a uh, vintage base or an 1864 baseball game is that nobody's wearing gloves. So you have to catch the ball. You don't necessarily have to catch the ball on the fly, but you still need to catch the ball with your bare hands. And that takes quite a bit of getting used to, especially if you've been trained your whole life to catch something with a glove. So there's like a little bit of a different technique to catching a ball. Um, generally, um, you want to bring, you, you have your hands kind of extended, you follow the ball down, you want to bring it into your chest if you're trying to catch a fly ball. Um, same applies for first base, and that makes actually first base one of the more challenging positions because you have to wrangle all the throws with your bare hands, and that causes a little extra challenge. And just as a follow-up, Noah, do you have any situations where the ball's just moving in so hot where it hasn't been able to be caught when it's coming at you? Yeah, sometimes we just kind of, you know, it's better to play safe than sorry sometimes. If there's a screaming line drive coming right at you, maybe you shouldn't try to catch it and just let the outfielder or another player get it after it bounces, which is, uh, DJ, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so um, this is DJ. I'll talk about what I feel is the main difference between especially 1864 rules um, and modern baseball, and that's, that we have what we call the bound rule and the bound rule um, is it allows the defense to have one bounce or one bound after a batted ball. um, And you can still record an out. So if imagine you're an outfielder and uh, you're covering a lot of ground, you may try to grab it on the, um, on the fly, but um, it might be more to your advantage to try to catch it off of one bound or one bounce and um, the, the benefit to that is that it kind of saves your hands a little bit. But the other thing is it really encouraged you to go after those balls. Um, there's a little bit of nuance in terms of base running from that. But uh, I find that when you, know, you, when you come in from a modern perspective, you're not expecting to see a bounce at all. And then um, that's the one thing that can catch almost all hitters off guard is you get this great hit. And then all of a sudden it's an out and you don't have no idea why, because it was clearly over the guy's head, but he was able to track it down on one bounce. It's really disappointing. Sometimes you'll just hit like a really, really good line drive. And then you'll just see the guy standing there catching it off the bounce. And you just have to deal with that. It's part of the game. And tell me a little bit about what it's like behind the plate. So when you're up to bat, what are some of the difficulties or the differences that you face as opposed to playing modern baseball? Well, this is Curtis, and I would say that uh, in conjunction with that, it's also pitched underhand. So it is a heavy-hitting game. So your strategy does have to change. And one of my ways of dealing with that is what we consider what we call the fair-foul rule. The, a hit will be considered fair if it first like strikes the fair zone and rolls foul Anywhere in the line. It doesn't matter how far past first or third base. It could drop straight down in front of you, roll backwards. That's a fair hit. And then you just have to leg it out and try to, you know, 
get to first base. And it works a lot for myself. I've been trying to perfect it because a lot of people aren't expecting it. And without having gloves to play with, there's a higher chance of an error happening at first base. We call them muffs in the game. And uh, that's usually how I get on base is just hoping for a weird hit that catches everybody off guard (laughs) and hoping for that missed catch. And then oftentimes, you know, if I'm getting extra bases, it's because it's overthrown at first. This is uh, this is DJ, and I just want to thank Curtis for letting everyone know your secret on uh, the fair foul hit. Uh, <laughs> but also to chime in exactly what Curtis was saying, it's um, one major difference between 1864 and maybe even 1886 in modern baseball is you're not going up there with the idea that you're going to you're going to smash it out of the park. There's no outfield fence. So there, a home run is you being able to run around the bases before someone gets the ball to home plate. So um, if you're a bigger guy like me, uh, your home run is going to be a double if you're lucky uh, because it's still, it's still the same amount of feet to the bases. Um, but uh, I would say in 64, if you can hit a real good solid line driver or, or even a, a really well-hit ground ball, you have just as much opportunity to get on base, which is kind of the great equalizer of 1864 rules is that um, you don't have to be a, a fantastic hitter to have an opportunity. As long as you can make solid contact and and uh, you can leg it out to first, you'll, you'll have a good opportunity. So if we could throw Ichiro in a time machine and take him back to 1864, boy, he'd be really killing it stat-wise. <laughs> well, I, I would say Ichiro would be just as dominant there as he was in the yeah. <laughs> if you put him in any era of baseball, he'd be one of the best, I think. Fair point. He's a legend no matter what. One, one last thing on, on the rules. This is Matt. The, one of the things that nobody has mentioned yet is that you have to stick first base. So you have to get to first base, but you can't overrun it like you can in modern baseball. And that's a lot more challenging than one might think. I find that I have to slide into first base almost all the time. And for somebody who comes in watching me do that, they're they're most of the time they think that I'm crazy because why would I slide into first base? But once you tag first base, you're no longer a striker. You become a base runner, which means that you can be tagged out immediately after passing over first base. So you can either go ahead and try to run off to second base, or you can try to get back to first base before you get tagged out. And that's actually, that's a lot of fun to do. And it's also um, pretty irritating when you get tagged out because, uh, because you don't know that rule. Now with each of these examples that you gentlemen provided, it sounds like you know, Curtis, you mentioned it. This is an offensive-minded game during this time period. What are some of the average scores that you end up with at the end of games during? This is Curtis. And uh, for an example, before we started our season, we played a team from Oakland uh, that has been very – they played a long time together. Uh, they play the 1886 rules because they're part of that Bay Area League that plays different from us. And it was a good experience for us before our season started to get a feel for the game, to bring in all our new players. And I believe the final score, they had 45, and we scored they six over runs. 50. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was uh, decades more of scoring, basically. <laughs> all right. So is, is that the norm or is that the exception, Curtis? So at, that was an exception, but the scores still run high. Um, one of the last games for our spring before we took our summer break, our Sacramento club took on the Davisville club and it came down to the last inning. Um, and I believe 
uh, Davisville took it 18 to 17. So scores do run double digits very regularly. And I can see why that would be certainly different from today's rules. You know, we're not in the dead ball area yet. So that's certainly the, the difference that stands out. I'd like to go into talking a little bit about some of the specific rules. We've talked about a couple of them, but when we talk about like with the Southern California club, they play by 1886 rules. So even if I went to their game as opposed to yours, there are some variations, correct? With the 1864 rules. What are some of those uh, variations? Yeah, uh, this is DJ. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this. Um, I actually had my first experience with vintage baseball in 1886 uh, rules. And I was a part of the gold country vintage baseball association, which is uh, kind of up in, in the gold country here of California where gold was discovered. And so that's how I got introduced to it. And it, it's a little bit more, the 1886 is a little bit more of what you think of with modern baseball. They, they play on a traditional diamond. Um, there is uh, it's the same distance and as modern ball in terms of bases um, and they have a backstop. Uh, they, they're playing with a little bit more equipment than we have. Um, the catcher is more protected, uh, certainly not to the point of modern baseball. They don't have shin guards and all of the necessary equipment that you'd want if you're if you're playing modern baseball. But in 1864, that equipment just isn't there. Um, our catchers are are not playing with uh, any protective equipment that any other baseman would play with and and because of that with the underhand pitching they pitch back or they uh, they play back a little bit um, one for ease and another one for safety the equipment is is slightly different you know obviously 1886 they're playing with a very rudimentary glove um, we're barehanded as Noah had mentioned before I, I would say the biggest difference is is some of the rules and the nuances uh, you know in 1886 they they allow seven balls um, and three strikes at your at bat, and they're also calling pitches to the pitcher. The the striker gets to decide if they would want to, um, if they prefer a pitch that's going to be in the high zone or the low zone, uh, to the umpire or the sir. In 1864, uh, and and I'm sure Matt will chime in about this in a minute. Balls and strikes weren't necessarily um, called it on every pitch, and uh, it's much more of a of a gentlemanly game about how um, balls and strikes are called or if they're called at all. So there's much less pressure on both the pitcher and the batter in terms of uh, um, in terms of delivering that ball. Uh, I would say 1886 tends to be a little bit more competitive because um, it is that fast pitch. And and even though a couple of the leagues have, have gone to making sure that there's safety precautions in place, it is a little bit more geared towards uh, a youthful youthful player. But 1864 you can have a wide range of abilities. You can have a wide range of age and everyone can be on an even playing field. One thing I think I forgot to mention earlier is in our 1864, the ball isn't like thrown overhand like you would normally see even in 1886. Uh, It's sort of an underhand pitch. It's kind of like slow pitch softball, but a little bit faster. So something between like slow and fast pitch, you want to, the pitchers tend to get it up there in, in a bit of a hurry, but it's not, the same overhand, like try to strike the batter out type of pitch. It's more to try to get the, the, the striker to hit the ball. So let's talk a little bit about some of the roots of baseball in central California, guys. I'd be interested to hear about how things started in your neck of the woods. Every part of the country has a different story in terms of how baseball started in their communities and the impact and the importance that it had. Uh, if each of you could talk about the clubs that you're associated with and uh, what you can tell us about their origin stories for their clubs, mm-hmm. why don't we go ahead and start off with you, Matt? Well, let me, uh, before I, 
I talk about any individual club. I should just talk about the whole state. The most important thing that happened in this uh, state was before it was a state, and that was the gold rush in 1849. There were some potential mentions of the New York game of baseball being played in California down in San Bernardino in like the 18, late 1840s. And there was also a mention of a possible gameplay in, uh, I think, in L.A. County somewhere in the late 1850s. The first time that we know for sure that the New York game was played here was in 1851. There was a publication in San Francisco. We suspect, though we can't, we don't really have proof of this, but we suspect that that's pretty much a function of the gold rush. Somebody from the East Coast came here and taught somebody else how to play this game because they thought it was a lot of fun. There, for a long time, people thought that maybe the person that brought this game here was Alexander Cartwright. So maybe some people know who that is. He's in the Hall of Fame. Um, Turns out that's probably not true. In fact, it's extremely unlikely that it is true. But it's a cool story. Uh, And it turns out that we are very close to that Gold Rush era, era area. So we are in Sacramento area, which is basically the base. I guess maybe DJ can to say this for sure, but I feel like it's pretty darn close to the Gold Rush area, uh, Coloma, mm-hmm. and the James Marshall uh, site. So it's yeah. likely that it can. Yeah, sorry, who was that? Was that DJ? Oh yeah, no, I was just gonna, I was going to back you up. Yeah, Sacramento is you know roughly uh, forty minutes, uh, you know, uh, drive from the heart of where gold was discovered and the entire Valley of gold rush towns um, littered all of the Eastern side of um, California. So uh, Sacramento was the major trading spot uh, where all of the miners came in. So they definitely would have had an opportunity to talk baseball if they knew it coming from the East coast. Indeed. And so that is most likely how baseball began in this area. The Athletic Baseball Club of Woodland started in at least as early as 1871. That's the earliest publication that I can find. And that's because that's the year that the first publications of any sort came out of Woodland. So it is entirely likely that there was baseball in that town prior to 1871, but I just can't prove it. Anybody else want to mention their clubs? Sure, I'll I'll chime in. Um, so Davis, California, which is where our our team is uh, based, used to be called Davisville, which is why we have the name on our team, our club. So it was early early European sub. There's an early European settler named Jerome C. Davis who built a ranch uh, in what's currently Davis right now. We have a little creek running through the town, which is where it was based. Uh, and there's historical records of baseball being played on that ranch back in the 1850s and 60s. So that's kind of what we use as the basis for our club. Also of note is that it, back in the 1880s, which is a little bit later, we had the Davisville team had a big rivalry with the Dixon team. So that's something we're kind of hoping to revive. There are two towns that are pretty close to one another. So they naturally were, came, became rivals. And uh, this is DJ, and, I, and I'll have Curtis chime in a little bit as well because uh, we're both on the Sacramento team. But uh, I'll say the Sacramento Club was established in 1859, and they're part of the first uh, kind of complete game that we know of um, th- to be based in California. In fact, the Sacramento Club holds a distinction for, for being uh, one of, if not the first uh, baseball clubs to ever be established in California, which is uh, – pretty amazing. And it it makes sense because like I said earlier, Sacramento really was the hub of um, exchange between uh, the kind of that gold country 
in San Francisco. It, you know, I'm not sure how much people know about Sacramento, but it, it's on the confluence of two major rivers. And uh, later on, it would be kind of the, the western terminus of the Transcontinental Railroad. So there was a lot of information that came through Sacramento. And compared to, say, maybe the Woodland or the Dixon or the, the Davisville Club, we like to consider Sacramento kind of the metropolitan of the of the four clubs because it might have had uh, less agriculture and more um, business, even if it um, was still pretty uh, pretty rural in that time. Yeah, this is Curtis uh, to chime in on the Sacramento Club. They do get the distinction, according to most baseball historians, of being the first established club in California. They put out a memo in the Sacramento Daily Union in November of 1859. And they, you know, put out a message like we challenge people to put together teams and to play. And then in February of the following year, 1860, on February 22nd, uh, George Washington's birthday, they decided to have the first possibly, Matt earlier mentioned that there was mention of games elsewhere in Southern California that might be baseball. But they put on the first, I guess, official game here in Sacramento. But by that time, uh, some San Francisco clubs also established themselves. And apparently, according to the story in a book called Nuggets on the Diamond, San Francisco put on their game in the morning to be the first official game. And the Sacramento club versus the Sacramento Union put on their game in the afternoon. So even though we were probably the first club, we were the second game in California. Now, guys, my my West Coast baseball history is it's better than it used to be, you know, from not only <laughs> from the interview with the other guys. It just popped up in my head. I'm going a little bit off track here. But, you know, you look at the major cities in California, a lot of them have professional baseball teams now in the MLB. Sacramento does it. Is there any reason for that? Or did they ever get close to establishing a team that you know of? So I'll, I'll, I'll start this, and I'm sure Matt is our, is our history guru, but uh, I'll say that Sacramento has a, has a really rich baseball history. Before Major League Baseball really came to the West Coast, there was the Pacific Coast League, which still exists today, which is now part of the minor league AAA system. And Sacramento had, um, throughout its history, various clubs, the Sacramento Solons being the kind of the most popular one and the one that people think of the most. Before professional baseball came over in terms of um, the major leagues, all the West Coast really had was that Pacific Coast League, and that bred so much talent for the major leagues. It was kind of like a um, a second, if you would, um, league or second professional league here on the West Coast. So Sacramento has always been a part of that. Um, now we have the Sacramento River Cats, which is a, you know a Triple A team, which is affiliated with the San Francisco Giants. But uh, we're really fortunate to be able to have this market because they're is so much talent and so much history that we can draw from. And even though it might be a little bit later than the vintage baseball that we play in 1864, it's kind of cool to tie that in because uh, um, we're really proud to have the Sacramento Baseball Club as our name. So, you know, you're talking about there's a, there's a wide pool of people that are interested in baseball. They're playing the sport. I'd like to ask you guys about the types of people that have joined your clubs that have come to play vintage mm-hmm. baseball. What, are, what types of individuals are signing up for your teams to play? Uh, this is Curtis, uh, and I'll start with this one. Um, we actually have a pretty good mix of people who love history, and there are another group of people who love to play baseball. Uh, maybe people who played in high school or college, some almost, you know, 
to possibly pro levels. But I think what draws everybody in is that it harkens back to, I would say, more of like a, a childhood sandlot game. The way we structure our association, we're not as highly competitive. Everybody wants to play. Everybody wants to do their best. But we're not going to yell at each other. We're not going to uh, We're not gonna swear. We're, we're trying to present a family-friendly event. So you will see a good combination where we have people who are really into history but are not very good at baseball yet. We'll get them there. We'll help them. We'll support them along the way. And then we have people who have played baseball with the modern rules who make just as many mistakes because they're learning older rules and get, you know, caught out by running past first base or that bound rule will get them. So even a person learning the game from a historical standpoint right now is almost on equal footing, basically, with someone who's played baseball all their life. And we attract both kinds. We've had, like, it's really interesting. This is Noah, by the way. It's really interesting, too, because you'll have these players come up and they'll hit the screaming line drive that'll get caught, and then they'll get out, you know, three of the four at-bats. And then you'll have these people who can hit the ball maybe, like, 30 feet, and they get on base every single time. <laughs> so it's really, it's, 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 just a, it's, it's really great in that these rules sort of level the playing field in a way that, like, modern baseball or even, like, slow-pitch softball don't, doesn't really do. Yeah, this is DJ. I'll, I'll I'll chime in that when we were trying to build our clubs, it, recruiting for to to play is is difficult, um, and and spectating as well. But playing especially is is an interesting sell because you you want to get someone who equally is intrigued by baseball, but also has that historical component and wants to be able to to showcase the game as we're wanting it to be displayed. I've I was a teacher for many years and I'm a vice principal now. And so I reached out and naturally a lot of my friends are, are educators as well and um, really appealing to them to, you know, that this is a really fun opportunity to, to learn and a fun opportunity to showcase history, but also that baseball knowledge and baseball um, acumen probably isn't the, the number one thing that you need in order to play. You need to have an open mind and, and, um, be willing to kind of go out there and make a little bit of a fool of yourself. You know, you're in a little bit of a funny uniform and, and we try to use a vernacular and a vocabulary that would be typical of the time. So a really good friend of mine who plays on our team kind of says it's, it's part baseball and part history and part theater. And that's kind of the fun of it too, because with all the spectators um, you, you do want to kind of showcase what playing was like. And so, and of that time period. So you, you, you do end up, kind of putting on a little bit of a show, a little bit of a showcase about what 1860s Central Valley would have looked like back then. And it, it's fun. DJ, as a follow-up, as an educator, do you see any of your students showing interest in vintage baseball if they've come to a game? Or do you have any college-age kids that are taking part in, uh, in, in joining any of your clubs? Well, I'll say that uh, I, I'm a vice principal at a middle school. So um, middle school it would be a hard sell. Uh, but I have had kids um, who've come into my office because they've been in trouble and seen pictures and wanting to know what the heck it is that I do on the weekends and why I'm dressed <laughs> so funny. Um, but I, I do see there's a decline in the popularity of baseball amongst youth in terms of there's more options for other sports. And, uh, you know, at my school, it's basketball, everything, basketball, football, basketball, football. But I find that as students get older, they tend to appreciate baseball more. And I would be really interested to let them experience what vintage baseball would be because 
for so many kids, uh, you know, baseball is pretty exclusionary. You need gloves and you need to buy a bat and to be able to be on a competitive team, you need, it costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time where vintage baseball, um, especially the one that we play, it's much more accessible. You can pick it up. And I think Curtis hit it on the head. It's, it's much more of a sandlot feel. And so I think, um, getting more and more players who are on the younger scale that want to come out and just experience what kind of that friendly aspect of baseball can be. It, that's where our, our niche is going to be. I know we've talked about trying to, uh, trying to partner up with some of the local colleges. In fact, the club that Noah represents Davisville is right next to UC Davis, a, you know, very well-respected college. So, you know, trying to get more and more of, of, uh, that crowd over to participate and enjoy what we're doing, I think is a goal of ours. This is Curtis. And to continue on with the uh, notion of education, um, historical education has, is just built into our association. And Matt has really done a great job promoting it that way. And as the Sacramento Club, for example, we recently participated in the 150th year celebration of the completion of the transcontinental railroad with the california state railroad museum in old sac which is a smithsonian uh, museum and the we were invited we participated in a parade we were put on the back of a horse-drawn wagon drawn pulled right through the town and then there was a big speech and a presentation presentation of a mile marker zero monument in old sack and across from the museum was a baseball field or not a baseball field, excuse me, just a big grass field, but we turned it into kind of a baseball field. It it was on a slope. um, But part of this event, a lot of elementary school kids were brought by buses, big groups and not to toot our own horn, but I think we may have been the biggest attraction that day. Uh, We set up out there, me and DJ and another player of ours, Justin, we took some balls and we didn't have enough room to play a full game, but the kids loved our costume. They wanted to like swing our bats. They wanted to see the difference in our ball and equipment. And then uh, DJ did most of the grunt work by lining up all the children, throwing the ball as far as he could and having like one kid at a time, just chase it down and try to catch it on one bound. And it was, we were probably there for like two or three hours, just throwing the ball as hard as we could. And the kids just loved running and getting the opportunity to show off their best moves and catching the ball on the fly like they would if they were playing in our era. 2,000 fly balls later, uh, <laughs> my arm was really dead. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Curtis is absolutely right. It, it it showed you that there is an appreciation for, for baseball. And, and uh, we gave one, one of the balls away to one of the spectators, one of the kids who really seemed to love it. And uh, seeing that kind of spark in his eye when he got that ball just reminded me kind of why we do this whole thing is that, uh, you know, to some, to, to somebody, it's, it's just a kind of a weekend fun thing, but to us, it's, we're recreating the past in a way that is totally unique to our situation and to our association. Living history is, is such a powerful medium, I think. And, you know, you look at the rise of just, just renaissance fairs and things like that over the past 15 years. There's a demand for that, especially with, with younger kids, I think, with the younger generations. So um, I applaud what you guys are doing. I think that there is a market there for 
for kids. I've never mentioned this on a podcast before, but the, um, the medium I use, it gives me analytics back on who listens to the show. The median age for people that listen to rounders is 32. It's not, you know, a bunch of 78 year olds tuning in. It's generally young individuals that are listening to the show. So that says to me, and we hear it more often than not, you know, baseball's boring. It's too slow. But I think John uh, Thorne said the other day, uh, MLB historian said, you know, we should stop talking about how we can speed up the game and start talking about how great our product is. I think there's truth Mm -hmm. to that. So absolutely. I applaud what you guys are doing. And, and talking about that, where there's, a, there's an opportunity to get younger uh, people involved with the sport through this medium, what types of crowds do you see coming to your games usually? What, what is the uh, atmosphere like and who are the uh, participants to watch what you're doing? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll chime in here. Uh, this is Matt. It's hard to answer that question right now, honestly, because we are still so new and we are in the uh, beginning process of, of our promotions and we haven't really identified entirely who it is that we would expect at these games. But from my experience, I've been doing this for, I don't know, five, six years or so. And most of the people who come generally are honestly just uh, family members of the, of the players that are participating. And they're interested because they find that their family member who may have never had any interest in baseball ever before is now suddenly doing this. And so they're interested in their loved one's interest. So it seems as though our, our customer base or our, our fan base is growing and we just, we don't know the answer to that just yet. Or do we, does anybody else have anything to say about that? This is DJ. I'll, 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 uh point out that uh, we've been pretty lucky in Sacramento because Matt has done a really good job of forming these really great association partnerships with, uh, with some of the other groups, um, historical groups in the area. And um, in old Sacramento, which is a, a really cool part of Sacramento, if you ever visit, it's a, it's a historical uh, recreation and um, preservation of how Sacramento was and uh, right in that time period, right? It's a gold rush from 1849 to 1860s. Um, they have the Sacramento Living History Museum, which is a bunch of dedicated volunteers who go out for different events and on weekends and dress up and, and portray different members from um, Sacramento history. We've been really fortunate to have some of those members come out to our games and to spectate, which really kind of... it. it it's really fun because you look out and you see these people in period costumes. And while that might not be the norm, it really does help to transform you back into the, you know, that it's not 2019 that you're playing in right now. It's 1864. And it's really great because other spectators can go up and talk to them and they can share their, their love and passion um, for what they do. But uh, I I will definitely agree with Matt that uh, um, the majority of our, of our spectators or, or loved ones and family members who uh, um, at first may not, may not have been on board with the idea that we were going to spend every other weekend playing doubleheader baseball games and uh, um, uh, you know, 90 degree weather, but they've really grown to, uh, to appreciate the game with us because they see how much we love it and how much uh, dedication we have. So if someone as a result of listening to this podcast or maybe attending one of your games if they wanted to get involved in vintage baseball, 
especially with your uh, association, where would you recommend that they start? This is Matt. I would recommend that they start by just doing a little bit of research about what what it is that they're interested in. You know, if they're interested in playing the game that we play, there's many, many teams in the country that do that. If they're interested in 1886 rules, there are far fewer, but they do exist. So I think the first place that they would want to go and look is at this place called the Vintage Baseball Association. The VBBA is sort of this national, I guess a conglomerate, I suppose, of many, many teams that are members of the VBBA. And we are members of the VBBA. All four of my clubs are are members. And if you go onto their website, which is vbba.org, you can identify any any club that is kind of near you. And then you can just reach out to that club because their contact information is there. If somebody is interested in working with us or playing with us, first of all, I want to mention that we're doing this, at least for now, we're doing it for free. We provide everything there is to provide. We got we, we provide the field reservations, fees, insurance, uh, well, liability insurance. We provide the uniforms. We provide all the equipment. All you have to do is just reach out to us and let us know that you're interested and then come to the game. To do that, you can find us on our website, uh, cbvbb.org, or you can find us on social media. We're all over social media. We have five Facebook pages, one for the overall program and then one for each of the clubs. And we have a Twitter account. We have an Instagram account. I think we have two or three of those. So your best bet is to just kind of reach out. And just ask questions. You know, most of us are pretty darn friendly. So we would be happy to welcome almost anybody onto the onto any club in the entire country. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? Yeah. One thing I want to add is, is that we set up when we built our association was it's it's 100% inclusive of every single person that wants to play. You know, we've uh, um, there really is should be no hesitation in, in wanting to play. Um, you know, we've had, and we've talked a little bit about the age range. We've, I think we've had people, we still have a couple people who are in high school that play with us. Um, we've had one gentleman play who's in his seventies. Um, we've had, uh, guys come on that, um, have literally no baseball experience. <laughs> and, uh, and we've had people that have played some, some, uh, college baseball. Um, um it's completely open to, um, uh, you know, to, Anyone and everyone who'd want to play, you know, uh, doesn't matter gender, doesn't matter any exclusionary factors. Anyone who wants to play, come on over. If you can get on base, if you can. (laughs) (laughs) So you guys are really the the evangelists of not only your association, but of 1864 baseball in your area. I'd like to hear from each of you why, why you do this. What got you into vintage baseball? Why you go out, you know, uh, as one of you said, every other weekend to play these double headers and, and not get to sit on the couch and, and enjoy the air conditioning. So um, Matt, I'd like to start with you. You're the founder. You're the, you're the guy that leads this. Why do you choose to do this as your hobby? I, my favorite part of this is putting people into a situation that they may not typically be in. I want, I like the opportunity that it provides as DJ was saying, everybody to, you know, go outside, enjoy some recreational activity, do it with a smile on your face because we're not competitive necessarily. 
just have a good time. Uh, for me, that's the big thing is, is giving people an opportunity to interact with people that maybe they wouldn't like, like we're already talking about. We have people in their teens, we have people in their seventies and everything in between. And how often do you see opportunities like that come up, especially in sort of a, a recreational or an exercise type activity where people of that much of an age range can, can, work and play together. It's amazing. I, that's for me, that's the biggest reason that I, that I do this. And then the second thing, and I'm hoping that some of these other guys will say this too, is history. I just love the history that, you know, for the entire, I just, I love all history. And this is a nice way to combine history with recreation and help other people see that not only did the game evolved sometime between the 1860s and now, but the area, the region, the country, the state is just different. So we like to show off not only the game itself, but also I just want everybody to have an opportunity to be on the field, hanging out with your buds for nine innings. And, you know, what's worse, it, it, even on your worst day playing this game, what are you doing? You're hanging out with a whole bunch of your friends and you're just kind of having a good time out on the field playing baseball. What's, what's better than that? Very true. That's why we all do it. I think Curtis, what about you? Why do you do what you do? So I was first drawn to the game uh, due to how unique it is. It looks different uh, to put it bluntly. It's weird. And I like (laughs) weird sports. Um, But once I started playing this type of game, the vintage baseball attracts people who are just genuinely there to have fun. Uh, Everyone there, whether you're making great plays or making hilarious muffs, everybody's going to cheer you on for those great plays. And they may laugh at you for those muffs, but you're laughing along with them, and there's no ego involved. You're just out there in a a funny uniform, so you can't be too prideful, essentially. And it's just a fun way to play the game without the over-competition. And there's just a lot more joy to it, I've found. The people there make me want to go back and hang out with them some more. After the games, we're often going out for beers and hanging out and talking about all the great and hilarious plays that were made for the day and can't wait till the next game comes up. And I would mention that we're we're all going out to these things. You know, it's not it's not team specific. Everybody's going out from mm-hmm. every team to, to do these drinks and food afterwards. It's, it's so much fun. So there's a real camaraderie between all of the teams, all the clubs. Absolutely. I'll, I'll say for, for me personally, I, I, I always enjoyed history as a, um, growing up and, and especially local California history. Um, I was fortunate. I grew up about half a minute, half of an hour from where, uh, gold was discovered in Columbus. So, um, California and specifically our region's history has always been really important to me. And then, um, getting into education, I wanted to share that with students, but my love of baseball um, was always centered around what you thought of as the history of baseball, which generally when you, you know, I, I love Ken Burns baseball. 
Um, but when you look at that, it's really centered on the East Coast and uh, the Midwest. And as baseball grew in popularity there, um, it was equally growing in popularity here on the West Coast. And to be able to share that connection with what um, was happening in the Sacramento Valley and what was happening um, in baseball in conjunction with each other is really awesome because it really changes people's perception about what baseball um, was in 1864. And Noah, what uh, got yeah. you vintage baseball in this fine group of gentlemen? So it was actually, to quote Bob Ross, it was a, quote, happy little accident, I guess, or just a lot <laughs> of coincidences. Um, so around the time the organization was starting, I was looking for a job. I just graduated school, and I was looking for opportunities to do communications work, just to get some experience for a career. And I saw a Reddit post from Matt about vintage baseball, and I saw Sacramento, and I thought, hey, why don't I message this guy? We'll see where this goes. Um, so I got him. I was actually pretty reluctant to play the first time. I hadn't played baseball since I was a kid. I always loved it, but I never really had, like, the talent to do high school baseball. So I got back into it, and I turned out really – I ended up really, really loving it. It's it's been amazing to get back on. I've I've loved baseball since I was a kid. I was a huge, have been a huge history nerd my whole life. Uh, I thought about majoring in history in college at one point. Um, so just to be able to combine that together has been really really cool. And also I've been I felt just really proud in being able to spread our organization's message and the just general knowledge about 1864 baseball and the history of this region through our social media accounts, through our communication strategy. Um, I feel like I've been able to bring that to the community in ways that some of the other vintage baseball associations around the country haven't. And I'm hoping I can, uh, I've been really happy to both play and to share my passion with others through those avenues. I just want to jump in real quick. This is Matt. Uh, there's a reason that Noah is called a Batman. Uh, for being as reluctant as he was to play, dude can hit that ball. <laughs> Almost every time he nails it, like over the center fielder, it's, a, it's awesome. <laughs> I got to find out before we close, gentlemen, you have some very colorful nicknames, and I'd like to just find out really briefly what the story is behind each of those. So, Noah, we talked about mm -hmm. yours with the Batman. Sounds like it's an appropriate nickname for the skill you show on the field, Curtis. Yeah. I want to, I want to point out too, that it's Batman. It's two words and not like the superhero. So it's like, it's nerdy, but it's also historically accurate. <laughs> so, and I, I also want to point out that uh, in, in terms of the way that we do nicknames, you can't choose your own nickname. It has to be bestowed upon you. So um, it kind of adds the stories of all of them. So I, I want to hear how, how, uh, Curtis became Hammer. Yes, I do too. Curtis, your nickname's the Hammer. Please tell us the story. Uh, so I actually played for a team in Tennessee uh, for two years. I lived out there um, with the same 1864 rules. And even that is not the origin of my nickname. I had the nickname the Hammer from college. And let's just say uh, I had a mohawk. Uh, and there was a moment where a bouncer at a bar um, thought maybe I was more like a hammerhead shark. 
and I have actually got a hammerhead shark now on like tattooed on me and that hammerhead stuck and everybody close friends of mine shortened it to hammer and it just felt very appropriate as a vintage baseball name and I also do a little woodworking on the side uh however that came after the nickname but that's the pg version of the original story not quite but close enough <laughs> so dj let's go to your nickname uh you're known as teach i'm gonna i could take a wild guess but where did yours come from yeah i think your wild guess would be correct but uh when i when i first started vintage baseball um there were uh the uh, captain of the team was also a teacher at that time and uh, but he already had a nickname and so he was trying to they're trying to figure out how that would work for me and um, I usually have a I'm usually the biggest person in the room I have a pretty big guy so um, they tried out different names on you know height and weight and stuff but uh, teach was the one that stuck because um, I was always the one to point out the uh, inaccuracies of things that would happen so um, if I'm not uh, if I'm not playing, I'm teaching. So teach teaches it, and no one wants to be called BP on their day off. So I stuck with teach. <laughs> <laughs> and so that leaves us with the founder, Matt. I think you have the classiest nickname of the four here, Brandywine. Can you give us a <laughs> Yeah. So when I was playing back east, uh, I actually wasn't called Brandywine. I was called Carolina because I had lived in South Carolina for a while, and then. I was actually, I was playing on a club called the Brandywine Baseball Club in Westchester, Pennsylvania. And for those who have never been in that area, if you ever get a chance to go to Southeast Pennsylvania, check out the Brandywine Valley. There's tons of history. It's super beautiful. And there's a really cool baseball club there. When I moved here to California, I was trying to make this Carolina thing work. But every time I was talking about putting this program together, I would mention the Brandywine Ball Club. And I spoke so much of it and so highly of it that people just kind of started calling me Brandywine. And I thought, well, that that's good. I like to pay that little homage to my old my old team. And so that's where my uh, that's where my nickname comes from. Very interesting. Guys, thank you for sharing that background with me on on the nicknames. Do most of the people on your clubs also have nicknames? Say that we're working on them. Uh, Not ever. Everybody does, but most people are kind of, you know, like I said, we're still kind of new. And like DJ said, you kind of, you kind of need to have something bestowed upon you. And that generally will happen as a function of gameplay. You know, you may do something silly or something amazing and you find that people just start calling you, Hey, that that's, that's perfect for you. But no, we haven't really gotten everybody uh, a nickname, but we've got, we got quite a few of them out there. Yeah. The, the Sacramento club has an official nickname, uh, committee that we we abide by so <laughs> you you have to play a certain amount of games and and show x amount of uh, grit and passion and then we'll bestow a nickname on you uh usually one where um we've gotten pretty creative with some of the names but uh usually one that just des- describes either your background or your play on the field uh, this is Curtis, and I want to chime in as our sacramento process for example I want to give a shout out to our pistol Pete um he's a quick little guy and he has managed already to steal home twice (laughs) so we needed something to indicate speed for his nickname so pistol became his nickname plus he's got a great arm from the outfield appropriate both ways i'm sure 
<laughs> Guys, before we close, I would like the opportunity for you to plug your clubs. Uh, Matt, you went and talked about a little bit about the website where people could go to find out more about your association. Gentlemen, um, would each of you be willing to talk about how people can follow you on social media or the ways that you have for people to keep up with what you're doing? Well, this is Matt, and I actually would like to defer my portion of this to Noah, my communications director. Uh, So you can follow, I think the best way to keep in touch with the organization as a whole is following Central Valley Vintage Baseball. Uh, As we mentioned earlier, we have a Facebook page, which we're probably the most active on. Uh, We also have an Instagram and a Twitter, which we're hoping to revive pretty soon, but we're pretty active on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, We'll post everything from we do what we call quote-unquote Trivia Tuesday every Tuesday. So we'll just post a historical tidbit or fact about either uh, baseball or about the region, depending on what I find the night before, which is usually when I write them. Uh, We'll also have uh, also just highlight weird rules sometimes so people get to know about the game. and on top of that, we also try to promote the different events that we're at, um, our different games. Our season doesn't start up till the end of next month, but we do have an outreach event next weekend. So we'll be posting about that later this week. Um, and that, that's so probably social media is the best way to follow us. Uh, there's also the website at cvvbb.org. Uh, we're in the process of updating that as well. And for the individual teams, uh, the Olita Club of Davisville, which I run, has a Facebook page. Uh, we're trying to be more active on that, but that's a good way to follow us specifically. And uh, I'll let you, the other, uh, I'll let everyone else kind of talk about how to connect with their clubs. Curtis, um, so for the Sacramento Baseball Club, we're on Facebook and we're active on there. I would say that is our most direct way to get a hold of us. We'll post what events are coming up. We'll make sure to highlight any activities we're doing in terms of teaching history or uh, collaborating with other associations. Um, We respond to our messages on there as well. Um, If you want to see some content, you can follow us on Instagram at Sacramento Vintage Baseball on there. And then um, we have an email address for our club as well. That's Sacramento Baseball Club at gmail.com, if I remember correctly. And this is Matt again. I will also point out that we have the two other clubs. We have the Athletic Baseball Club of Woodland, which has an Instagram page and a Facebook page. And we have the Aetna Baseball Club of Dixon, which has a Facebook page. And I think that might be it. But uh, Aetna is A-E-T-N-A if anybody wants to try to find it. Well, for our listeners, I'll make sure that I include links to all of the, both the website for the Central Valley Vintage Baseball Association and the social media handles for each of your clubs in the show notes. So if you'd like to get in touch and follow with what these gentlemen are doing in their clubs, you can do that very easily. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. I wish your association and your clubs all the best in the future. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Thank Thank you. you so much. I appreciate it.